0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Um, Listeners, we're recording this on winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, and it's a beautiful day in Utah. My guest and I are both in Utah, and by the time you listen to this, you'll be on the road to the longest day of the year in June, which is one of my favorite days of the year. But my guest on today's podcast, calling in from his office at Utah State University in Logan, Utah, is my friend Patrick Mason. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick.
1: Thank you. It's so good to be here.
0: Um, will you I think a lot of our listeners know you. You have a Wikipedia page. Whenever I have a guest and I go on Wikipedia and the guest is there, I know that I'm interviewing somebody. And all of my guests are have an important story to tell, but you're a little more well known in the latter-day Saint community. Will you um first introduce Your education background, I know you've got a couple degrees, master's degrees and a PhD, just introduce that. And then we're going to talk about the books. We're going to talk about your assignment at Utah State and then the book we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah, terrific. Um, So I I got my bachelor's degree from BYU in history and then went on to graduate school at the University of Notre Dame, uh, which was just a terrific experience. And, And I got a couple of different master's degrees, one in history and one in international peace studies and then finished my doctoral degree in American history.
0: And you had twins born in Indiana, I believe during this time. Yeah, that was my
1: real education. Tell our how
0: listeners you know. how many kids you had under three at Indiana. So, so
1: we've got, we've got uh, four kids, uh, range uh, from, from 12 years old to down to four.
0: Um, so that was crazy times, PhD a, and twins. And I think you had another little kid during that time too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, that was the, the, the year that we had the twins was the year that I was finishing my first book. Uh, and it was, um, let's just say that we don't have a lot of memories of that year. My wife and I, we're, we're very glad that we did take a few pictures and videos along the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Um, tell our listeners how you got to Notre Dame.
1: You know, I, um, uh, it was a bit of a fluke, but a providential one. Uh, so maybe not a fluke at all uh, that, uh, when I graduated from BYU, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to be a professor. And and so I needed to get a PhD and I applied to to programs all over the country. Um, and I, I, I went through BYU very quickly, uh, and probably was not quite ready, uh, frankly, to, to apply to a lot of graduate programs. And I was applying to a lot of elite programs and I got turned down by most of them. (laughs) Um, and I got into Notre Dame, uh, and, um, and it had a, had and still has a terrific program in American religious history. I was specifically interested in religion, and uh, so I went there. and it, um, I I can't imagine a better place for me have, for for me to have studied both in terms of the professors and the the other graduate students and the ov- overall program. Um, but but also there was a there was a group of Latter Day Saint uh, graduate students there. Um, in various programs all across the university, uh, one of my best friends was in the history program with me, or what became, you know, one of my best friends. And actually, uh, my my new book, the um, it's dedicated uh, to the Glass darklies, which won't mean anything to most people, but for for, for me, there was this uh, this group of Latter Day Saint graduate students there at Notre Dame that you know we'd get together on Friday or Saturday nights and just talk about everything from football to religion to life to everything. And that was um, that remains one of the most important group of people in my entire life.
0: It's really cool. Um, Talk about what you did at Claremont and then what you're doing at Utah State University for our listeners.
1: Yeah, I've been really fortunate in terms of my career. Uh, And so uh, in in 2011, I I started work at Claremont Graduate University in a position. It's called the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies. There's just a handful of these endowed professorships in Mormon studies around the the country, around the world. Um, And uh, so so the Hunter Chair is is one of those named after, of course, Howard Hunter, who was from Southern California. So it was appropriate to have that that position named after him. And that was just a terrific experience for me to be there, to to be on the faculty um, teaching courses in Mormonism and American religion and other related things and working with just an incredible group of really bright students there. Uh, both LDS and non-LDS. Um, uh, so I spent eight years there and then a uh, year and a half ago came up here to, to Utah State where there's a similar position here. It's called the Leonard Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture, named after uh, Leonard Arrington, who was one, one of the most important and kind of path-breaking historians of, of Mormonism, who was on the faculty here at Utah State. Um, and uh, so it's... Uh, I. I um, Sometimes I just kind of pinch myself. I mean, it's it's a it's a privilege to be able to do what you love and get paid for it, uh, and and I'm lucky enough to to be in one of those positions.
0: And I wish our listeners could see Patrick because you can tell he just loves what he does. It's just it's just it's all over his face, and <laughs> there's so much energy and light and excitement. Um, was the Leonard, Was this is this a new chair at Utah State, or did it exist before you your assignment?
1: It existed before me, so I'm the second holder of the chair. Phil Barlow, who's one of the best scholars of of Mormonism, held this chair for several years before I came. This was actually the first one um, that was established, the first of these Mormon Studies chairs that was established. And so Phil held this position. Now he's down at the Maxwell Institute at BYU. Uh, Phil's just a great friend and mentor, and uh, uh, you know definitely encourage anybody to to become familiar with him and his work. Uh, And he's also just such a gentle soul and. One of the wisest uh, people I've ever met. So these are uh, big shoes to to fill here at Utah State,
0: and that's the same f- shoes I think you filled filled at Claremont with Richard Bushman. If yeah, are, I
1: followed Richard Bushman there. So I I have, have a are, habit. Of, yeah, go, of, go, introduce of, Richard
0: of, Bushman to our listeners if anybody doesn't know who he is.
1: Richard is, um, you know. It, it, there's, there's this generation of, of scholars who are now in their 70s and 80s, and some have passed away, um, who revolutionized the way that we think about Mormon history. Richard is, 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 a, is among that group and, and, and among the top of that group. He's most famous in Latter-day Saint circles for writing a book called Joseph Smith's Rough Stone Rolling, uh, which is kind of the definitive academic biography of Joseph Smith. Um, but he was a very well-known historian before that. He, he he's He finished his career teaching at Columbia University in an endowed professorship there. Richard is um he is just a, a, a paragon of not only scholarship but also discipleship. And uh, one of the wisest people you'll ever meet. I, I oftentimes say that anytime I feel like I have an original thought about Mormonism, I do a little more reading and I realized Richard was there, you know, three or four decades uh, before any of the rest of us. And so he's just, uh, he, he's one of my mentors. Um, and uh, I can't say enough about the impact that Richard has had, not only in my life, but but on our entire community.
0: What a compliment um, to Richard. And I don't quite remember, I don't know if you remember off the top of your head, maybe two th- I was asking the date of the book. Rough Stone Rolling, I think it's 2007 from just my... Yeah, 2005, I think. He he
1: published it in um, conjunction with the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's birth. And uh, talk
0: to our listeners about the first... We're going to... Listeners, the focus of this podcast is going to be Patrick's latest book called Restoration, God's Call to the 20th Century World. But talk about your first book for a Um, moment or two the first one i'm aware of is planted i don't know if there's yeah so i actually to... have
1: a, a bunch of other books before that but they're all <laughs> academic books that nobody reads so so, the, uh, so so planted was the first book of mine that it that uh, that, that certainly people in the latter day saint community uh took um took much notice of and and you know it, it was published 5 years ago at, um at the end of 2015 and at the time um you know so shortly after i uh uh, went to Claremont and, and, uh, took the Hunter chair. Um, I've always been a very active member of the church, uh, and have loved the church and cared about it. And I was, I was invited by, um, a good friend of mine named, uh, Tom Griffith. Uh, he said, you know, um, the, the Bushman's Richard and Claudia Bushman, and then the Givens Terrell and Fiona Givens, um, are, are going out and starting to give talks to to people about the, the kinds of questions and doubts that people have about the church. Um, you know, in the in the early two thousand tens, um I think it was, that was really the moment in which we really realized that there were significant numbers of people who were struggling with their faith. Um of course, you know, Church membership has always been, a, you know, a, a leaky bucket. That has always been people coming in and people going out. But there was a particular dynamic here uh, around what we now call faith crisis, uh, around a, a number of issues that people were facing. And so, so the Bushmans and the Givenses were going out and giving talks. And and so Tom invited me. Uh, I was kind of the. The, the junior um partner uh, for, for the Bushman's for a couple of these. It's kind of like High Council Sunday where they bring along a, a return missionaries. I mean, that's that's the way I felt uh coming along, you know, and speaking with these heroes of mine, Richard and Claudia. Um, so I, I did a few of those. I did a bunch of firesides, you know, I started getting invited by stakes and wards to 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 speak to this, how to deal with difficult questions about church history, especially because of my background as a historian. And and it was interesting in every single one of these events that I did um I, we always did q and a at the end and there was a palpable sense of of pain and of confusion and and, and a kind of hunger for for like where do we go right i mean for for a kind of Perspective of how do you deal with these things honestly, rather than just burying our head burying our head in the sand, but also faithfully. Right? Is there a way through this stuff to to still be an active member of the church and a faithful one, a a believing one? And time after time, people would say, you know, where's the book? Where can I read about this? And this was even before Terrell and Fiona had had published the Crucible of Doubt. I mean, there was literally nothing um, in in terms of printed uh, uh, form on on this kind of stuff. And and i and I kept saying, and you know, I don't, I don't know, Somebody's to else is going to have to do it. I've got a day job, right? You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm doing other stuff. Um, I, I was doing this very important academic research that nobody was reading. Um, and um, and fi- I, I'll never forget where I was. I was doing one of these fake firesides and somebody asked that question, that same question that I'd heard many times before. And it just hit me. Um, I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing this book. I mean, it, just the a kind of moment of realization, a moment of clarity. Um, and so um uh, so 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 I wrote planted uh, in order to to try and provide just my perspective on how do you think uh, first of all, first of all, can we acknowledge that faith crisis is real, right? I, th- I think there was still then a lot of denial among active church members um that these questions mattered, that they were legitimate um. Uh, that people weren't just sort of using them as a cover for other kinds of sin. And, and, and we still hear that sometimes. Um, so first of all, to, to kind of give voice to, to the validity of the, of the questions and doubts and struggles that people have, but then to provide a framework from me as a, as a believing historian, somebody who's, who's dealt with the issues, dealt personally and, and gone through them, but also come out on the other side, if anything, um, even more committed um to 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 the church and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, to to, to try and provide a, a a framework for people to do that. And so so insofar as it's helped people, I'm, I'm I'm grateful for that.
0: Um the book is called Planted Belief and Belonging in an age of doubt. It's at Desert Book, it's at Amazon. It was published in 2015 and I was a YSA bishop during the time this came out. And went through a mini faith crisis while being a YSA bishop. And I knew some of the narrative that I'd heard about people like me didn't apply because I was praying and reading and, and helping people come into Christ and seeing great success. I and had this also going on in my life. And I don't know who got me on your book, but, you know, this is a personal thank you over this podcast for Patrick giving me the tools that I needed to navigate that. And that book was an answer to prayer for me. And I'm so grateful that book exists. And then it helped me help the YSAs. And it's forever helped me. And one of the parts of that book that, and I don't, I can't quite remember the vocabulary used, but you talk about historical stuff that is kind of one bucket of challenging things and then current issues like LGBTQ of roles or women and you talked about squeezed out to define one and another term for the other. I don't no, know switched I, off. yeah, will you just share a switch that resonated with me. Will you just share that with our listeners?
1: Yeah, and I think I got this terminology from Richard Bushman to to prove the earlier point <laughs> uh, but uh, but switched off is this notion I mean that that uh, suggests that somebody at one point was switched on. Yeah, Um, meaning that that they were fully invested in in the church, uh, either as a lifelong member or as a convert. It really doesn't matter. Um, But um, but these were people who had testimonies that they you know oftentimes served missions, who were active in the church, uh, you know attended the temple, were endowed, uh, oftentimes held callings, um, uh, and. and and saw that very much as, as their life and their identity. But then something happened along the way. Oftentimes it, it meant encountering information on the internet, um, especially with these some of these kind of historical and doctrinal issues um, that, that troubled their understanding of the church. And that they might have been uh they, their first response might have might be to kind of dismiss the information as anti-Mormon, you know, garbage or, or something like that. But, but then upon doing a little bit more of research they realize wait a minute this stuff is real um, and uh, that um, that what what happens is is it's the particular for a lot of people that I talk to it's yes it's the particular issues whether it be I don't know see uh, your C- Joseph Smith and see C- stones or Joseph Smith's polygamy or or a book of book of Abraham questions or race and the priesthood I mean there's any there's about a, a dozen issues that come up pretty consistently for people um, and um, what happens is, is it erodes. There's a sense of betrayal. Like, why didn't the church tell me any of this, right? I've spent, I've given my life uh, to, to the church. I've given a lot of money to the church. Um, and why didn't anybody tell me this? And there's a sense of, of betrayal because, because faith is trust, right? And um, so there's a loss of trust and it's, it's uh, that relationship is damaged. So for a lot of people, that's that's what it means to be kind of switched off, to the, That that's, um, there's just this this feeling of uh, oftentimes of, of abandonment betrayal loss grief pain um at, at what they see as as a relationship that, that didn't live up to, to the terms that that they thought it was supposed to um and and so then the the, the second is is squeezed out people who for one reason or other just feel squeezed out of the church out, out of this culture but also maybe out of the teachings of the church and oftentimes this is more uh, maybe less around social and, and, and culture or, or less around kind of doctrinal and historical issues and more around social and cultural issues. Per, for instance, um, women's equality and women's roles within the church um, or for for a lot of uh, people of color, especially within the American church, which is overwhelmingly white um, uh, or I think that the number one issue now is LGBTQ issues, not only people who themselves identify as LGBTQ, but allies and friends and family members and, and, and or just people in the general culture, especially younger folks who have been raised, you know, to to expect equality and, and see it in every other part of the culture. And then some of the things they see in here at church don't match up with that. So they wonder, is there a place for me in this community? And, and even is there a place for me in this doctrine? Uh, and so they feel squeezed out.
0: So that was so helpful for me. I just felt like here was somebody in the church that had navigated this, that talked about how to move forward in a faithful way, that was in the church with the testimony talking about it, and you were the first guy that did that. It was so helpful for me, and it's been so helpful for so many that I've interacted with, and I know you've become friends with my brother Dave, and I just want to um, make sure our listeners are aware of his book, because it's a a close companion book to your book. His book is called Bridges Ministering to Those Who Question by my older brother, David Osler. And just your thoughts on Dave's book.
1: I think it's tremendous. Um, like I said, when, when I wrote Planet, there wasn't very much on the bookshelves. Um, the church had just started publishing the Gospel Topics essays online and actually used those a, a lot in, in my book. But, but there really weren't very many resources if you went to a Deseret book or, or or something like that that there, there was not going to be a whole lot to help you and that was just five years ago right i mean this this is this is recent history and since then there's just so many more resources not only in print but online like like this um like like your podcast and one of the the um i think your your brother's book bridges for me it was so welcome when I saw it. And, and we communicated a little bit while he was writing that book. Um, I was so pleased to see it. I think it's terrific because if Planted, uh, I, I, I think it's a pretty decent book. I wrote it. My name's book. on it. It's a um, great book, Patrick. <laughs> but but, um, but it's it's um, it's long on principles and maybe a little short on how-to's. Um, and partly, actually, that was a conscious choice of mine. I mean, th- th- part of me is like, I, I'm not in a position to tell anybody what to do. I, um, I, uh, but, but also, um, to, t- to be perfectly honest, I grew up in a church, um, per- culture where I heard a lot of people telling me what to do. Um, and so I've always been inspired by, you know, Joseph Smith's quote, we teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. And so that was sort of my approach, and and planted. Um, it, was, it was much more of a principle based uh, framework. What I love, but 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 the thing is, um, I think that's helpful for people. But people also need more. People are busy. People live busy lives. Uh, pe- people are grasping um, for, um, especially either when they're in crisis or when people that they love are in crisis. they that they want some just concrete answers and examples and and things like that. And I think this is one of the things that. That your brother uh david's book does is it not only is, is great on the principles and the background and and he does um he had the he, he did so much research in terms of talking to people who, who had gone through you know so it's very data-driven and evidence-driven and, and that way i mean it's built on people's stories um which is so powerful just like your book listen learn and love the same kind of principle um and, and then he responds to that by, by offering, you know, church leaders and parents and others and, and also people who are struggling with these questions some some really concrete practical um uh suggestions of, of how they might handle these things, some kind of do's and don'ts, and, and they're uh, uh and, and and the don'ts are important because a lot of people are um have been harmed by by things they've heard people say or do, oftentimes well-intentioned, but 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 um so I I I always say like if if there's one book that, that, that a bishop or a state president or a relief society president or somebody should have in terms of how to minister uh, to people with questions and doubts and faith crisis I I think it should be Bridges, um, uh, just because I think it it um, built on some of this other really good work uh, but then really responded to to people's actual stories.
0: Well, it's, I'm very kind of you on behalf of my brother and our family for your support of his book, and I agree with you; it's a really good book and. He's a very analytical kind of a research guy, so I think he brings principles, and then the, just like you said, sort of the data, and then what to do. And I think these are wonderful companion books, listeners. Planted and um, Bridges—they're both available at at Desert Book. I see lots of um, Facebook posts about how helpful these books are, and and how much people are yearning for local leaders to read these books. Often, there's a feeling that local leaders perhaps need better tools that these books will provide to minister. I know that helped me significantly to read Patrick's book. It gave me a whole series of tools to help the YSAs. And now since that assignment's end, just in the circles I'm in to help people um, navigate complicated issues that no training meeting had ever given me some of the tools that Patrick and my brother provided. Let's um, move, let's shift gears a little bit. um, You've written another, we're going to talk about this book. So just introduce this book to us, why you wrote it, what's in it. I'll just turn it over to you, Patrick.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, so, so this new book, uh, Restoration, God's Call to a 21st Century World, um, it, it was really prompted by a, a couple of different things. Um, one is that um, planted was um as useful as it's been for lots of people and i've been really gratified by the response to it um and and i will say uh, just to, to your last point there uh, i can't tell you how many people have told me i bought a copy for myself and read it and then i bought a copy for my <laughs> bishop or my stake president or like the stake presidency and all of the high council right exactly. so those are the ones i like because it sells a lot of books <laughs> um uh, but uh uh so so it, it, Really useful, I think, in, in in some ways, but but in a lot of ways, like I was just talking about, planted was a book that was playing defense, uh, in 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 some ways, um, that um, the, the sort of responding to, um, you know, the, the 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 crisis and the struggles and doubts of of lots of people, and 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 trying to think of a of a really positive framework and helpful framework to to do that. Um, but but in, in a lot of ways, the, the, the questions that animate Planted, um, uh, again, Planted is sort of acting as, as a response to uh, those kinds of things. And I think that's that's super important for us to do that kind of work. But I also, um, uh, in, in, we need to, I think, not only provide arguments for why people shouldn't leave <laughs> the, the church, to, to put it negatively, but I think we should also always be providing positive arguments for why they should stay and why the restoration is meaningful um, in, in the 20, like now, today. Of course, we know it was meaningful for the pioneers and for, you know, and so, but but, but today, what, what does it mean for us? And is there a, a sort of positive articulation of the gospel that we can offer? So that's that's part of what I'm trying, trying to do in the book. And then, you know, the other thing is... Um, it is responsive to a kind of moment in time. Uh, you know, this year we celebrate the 200th anniversary of the first vision, and so you know this restoration thing has been going on for 200 years. That's a pretty good track record as as religions go. I mean, not not as long as the big ones, but but most new religious movements uh, disappear within a generation. They they don't don't outlive the founder. And you know we're, we're we've got a good track record now. Mormonism is here to stay. It's not going anywhere, folks. Um, uh, and, and so what I wanted to do in this book was to reflect on, okay, we've got two centuries under our belt. Congratulations, pat on our back, right? What do we do now? What does the third century of the Restoration look like? And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that, um, you know, the, the the Restoration, this is true of any religion, but it always has to speak to the current needs and questions of the present generation. It's not enough that it answered the questions for your grandparents and great-grandparents. It's not enough that it that it, that it got the pioneers, you know, from Nauvoo to Salt Lake uh, or from Manchester uh, to, to Salt Lake. That was great for them. It carried them through and it gave them tremendous purpose and, and meaning. And um, But what does it mean for us now? That's the question that I'm really interested in. So every generation has to rediscover the gospel anew. And that's what this book is trying to do, is, is to try and breathe life into what does this concept of restoration mean for us now in 2020, as we stand on the precipice of the restoration's third century. Um, and so, so that's really what's, what's behind the book, is, is a series of reflections on um, how we can make this concept of restoration meaningful for us today.
0: That's cool. As you talk about this book, and listeners, I haven't read the book, uh, that seems very unique to me, Patrick, and very sort of like, okay, I want to hear more, so share more.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, so a couple things. Okay, so um, there are a couple of specific questions that that I was trying to um, address in the book. One is that... um, uh, so so the first chapter of the book is called The Fortress Church. And this is this is based on some experiences that um, my family and I had. Uh, I had a Fulbright in Romania. So in 2015, we, we spent uh, almost half a year in Romania, which is just an amazing place. Um, Uh, so beautiful and so much history. And the great thing about the history there is because it's not like America or Western Europe. Like you can go to castles. There's like no gates, there's no ropes I mean, like we would take the kids, we would literally be just climbing on these like 13th century castle walls. Right. I mean, it's so so much fun. Um, And, but one of the places we visited was a little town called Viskri. It's a little village. Um, It's a UNESCO world heritage site. And at the center of this village, um, and this was true in this, this region is it was this uh fortress church um it looks like a castle it's got this wall around it you know it's got it's got the parapets with like the narrow little you know windows for you know the shoot bows and arrows and stuff like this but it was a church and what during the middle ages i mean the people of that village and the surrounding areas when invaders came they would rush into the church close the gates and they would be protected inside the church right um and now, now the thing is, I mean, it's this is a great place to visit. It's 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 beautiful. It's it's quaint. But but, but nowadays in the twenty first century, this place is nothing more than a museum. Time has passed it by, right? So it it fulfilled its function. It was it was a place of safety and of refuge for these folks from from a, a hostile outside world. But what I what I say in that chapter is, you can't stay in the fortress forever. You can't stay in the fortress church forever. Time will pass you by. And I think that's what we created um, in for, for much of our history was a fortress church, of course, metaphorically. Um, that And look, I understand. I've, I've written about the violence against Mormons, the, the very real persecution that our people received, especially in the 19th century. There is a time to circle the wagons, right? There is a time you know, um, to, to flee to Zion for safety. Um, but also, it seems to me that when I read the New Testament, when I read the words of Jesus, what does he call us to do? He calls us to go out and to transform the world. And you can't do that from within the walls of the fortress church. So, yes, there is a time to retreat into the fortress for safety. But, but, but I think um, now maybe it's time, I wonder if it's time for us to lower the drawbridge, open the windows, and, and to go out into the world. A little bit more, to meet the, the people, to meet the world where it is. You know, there's this famous verse, maybe the most famous verse in the New Testament, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten uh, son. God so loved the world. He doesn't hate the world, right? We, we, we use the term the world, you know, uh, and I know that sometimes in the scriptures it is used in, 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 in that kind of way, but we use the term the world like it's a bad thing. Right. but God loves the world. Right, He loves it so much. He sent his son. This, this is what we celebrate this time of year, that God loves this world so much that he came into it through the incarnation to redeem the world. And that's what he calls us to do too. All of the metaphors that Jesus uses, light, yeast, salt, That's what he calls his disciples to be. Now, they're all very, very small. This is the other thing. Sometimes we think, oh, the stone cut out of the mountains. We're going to be huge. It's going to be this big empire, right? We're going to have all these members. No, light, yeast, and salt are all tiny. They're all tiny. But what they do is they have a transformative effect on the larger mass around them. It only takes a little bit of yeast to to make the the dough rise. It only makes a little – light particles are so tiny they're invisible, but they dispel the darkness. Salt, you only want to pinch. Uh, and it completely transforms a the dish. These are the metaphors that Jesus chose to describe his disciples. So our church is never going to be the biggest. It's not called to be the biggest. Nephi already Nephi saw that. He prophesied that it wasn't going to be be the biggest. Um, but it's going to have what we are called to do is to have a transformative effect on the world. And um, we can't do that from within the the fortress church. so so that's that's part of the that's sort of what I'm um trying to think about here is what effect, how do we go out, go about? And and it seems to me that the mission of the restoration is not just to get a bunch of converts and bring them into the forcer's church. Um, The mission of the restoration is to heal the world. The mission of the restoration is to unite and heal God's family. The only way we can do that is if we love the world the same way that God loves the world.
0: Wow, Wow. I'm just really moved by that. I think our listeners are too. Um, I think we're all really wounded, Patrick. I think the world yeah. is really wounded. I am 60 years old and had a pretty non-wounding life, but the truth is I'm pretty wounded after 60 years. And um, and I think the world is that way, and I'm certainly aware of that more than ever right now. And I I look at this, I look at our beautiful restored doctrine, and I look at missionary work, and to me, the restoration is a means to heal the world. and And to heal our woundedness and and um, that's one of, just talk more about, you know, as we leave the Fortress Church, and maybe these are other chapters of your book, what, you know, and I'm thinking of millennials and Gen Z's that are wired exactly the way you're talking. Yeah. Um, They don't. I still want them to read your book, but it's like they didn't need to read your book to know what to do this. (laughs) They somehow just read the scriptures, read the New Testament, look at the life of Christ, and just are wired this way. We've got six of those at our home, Gen Zs and Millennials, and that's the way they're wired. So talk more just how you do that.
1: So so kind of two things here. So I think that there's two questions of, of how does the restoration speak to this? And then I think it raises the very important question that, that that is implied in your comment of okay, so if people are already wired this way, first of all, why bother to write the book? But 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 even more significantly, why bother connect to the church? Yeah. Right. What does the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have to offer this this project? So so first of all. This sense of of restoration and a broader sense of restoration. You know, I, I was raised in the church with with thinking that restoration, capital R restoration, meant the church, uh, priesthood authority, um, you know, the organization of of the church. Um, and I, I I still think there's 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 a, a lot to that. But but some really interesting happened while I was writing this book. I, I did a little bit of research. This this is not a history book. Um, I. But I'm a historian, so I can't help it. So I have to look into history uh, a little bit. So I was doing some research on, okay, how did Joseph Smith talk about the Restoration? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm used to, to using these phrases, the restored church and the restored gospel. So, so I went into the Joseph Smith papers, which is terrific. You can go, just go on the website and search everything that Joseph Smith ever said. Um, and so I entered the term restored church. You know how many times Joseph Smith referred to the restored church, like that actual phrase, restored church? How many? Zero. Wow. Joseph Smith never used the phrase restored church. Never. Not once. The first time the phrase restored church appears in General Conference, 1918. Wow. Now, of, of course, the, the concept of the restoration of the church was there, but, but, but people didn't talk about the restored church. And, you know, this is just part of my religious vocabulary, restored church, right? right? But this is new. This is a 20th and 21st century phenomenon. Joseph Smith, in fact, when you think about the Articles of Faith, he does use the word restoration. It's not in the Article of Faith about the organization of the church. It's in the Article of Faith about Israel. When Joseph Smith was talking about restoration, what he was talking about was Israel, and then specifically in the Book of Mormon, and in some sections of the, of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lamanites. When he said restoration, that's what he meant. Now, the, for, for me, I, look, I'm, I'm a Gen X guy, and, you know, late 20th, 21st century, like, restoration of Israel, when I read those passages in the Book of Mormon, frankly, they've never done a whole lot for me. Right. But but President Nelson comes along and talks a lot about this, talks about the gathering of Israel, says it's one of the most important things that, that's happening in the world right now. And so it forced me to go back and sort of rethink this. And again, to, to think that whenever Joseph Smith was talking about the restoration, most of the time he was talking about Israel and the Lamanites. Well, you know, I, th- I think nowadays we're not as confident as we used to be <laughs> about who and where the 10 tribes of Israel are. All right. We used to have very specific theories about that. I don't think we do anymore. Agreed. We used to feel like we had a lot of confidence about who the Lamanites are today. We're not as confident about that anymore, Agreed. right? So, so to, to me, I'm perfectly willing to let God do the work of restoring the 10 tribes, whoever and wherever they are. The Lamanites, whoever and wherever they are, <laughs> I'm, I'm more than happy to let God do that work in his, in, in, in his own way. In the meantime, what do Israel and the Lamanites have in common? Well they, they they have in common a history of of being persecuted, of being marginalized, of being scattered. The Lamanites regarded as filthy, right? And it seems to me that, that we do have a lot of people around us who feel marginalized, who feel scattered, who feel persecuted, who are treated by one group or another, by the majority culture as filthy. And it seems to me that when God calls us to the work of the restoration in the 21st century, I mean, who does God restore? Who does God minister to? We believe in a God who ministers to the marginalized. That is what God has always done. When he called Israel, that's what he was calling a nation of slaves. He was liberating a nation of slaves. When God, when Jesus came to Palestine, he came into a colonized, oppressed people. And minister to to them. Uh, this has been the pattern of God's work throughout history. And so, the restoration means specifically God is trying to heal His family from the brokenness, from the woundedness, from the marginalization, from the fracture, from the violence and victimization that people experience. So, what do we need to restore? When, when we look around, who do we need to restore? Who do we need to minister to? Well, it's the people who are on the margins. It's the people who've been victims of abuse. It's the people who have experienced trauma of all kinds. It's the people who feel squeezed out, who feel like there isn't a place for them in God's family. Because guess what? There's a place for everybody in God's family. This is what God calls us to restore. When he says rest, restoring Israel, restoring the Lamanites, again, there's a very specific set of histories there that, that I believe in God's promises to do that. But as part of a general calling, um, God invites us to, to, to do his work the same way that Jesus always did, among, uh, with a special attention. Of course, Jesus' work is to redeem everybody, but with a special attention on those who are, who are marginalized and feel like they aren't part, um, who, 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 for whatever reason, and oftentimes through our own fault, um, aren't fully experiencing God's love. And so the restoration is to bring people back into the circle of God's love.
0: That deeply resonates with me, and um, I look at my baptism covenants, my temple covenants, and to me, it's all about my relationship with other people, and yeah. it starts with those that are the most marginalized and helping them feel fully included, and um, Alma's baptism invitation that you know and our listeners know, I think it's Mosiah 18, he talks first about bear more in comfort. When he issues yeah. that baptism, he de- challenge. He doesn't talk about commandments. That comes. But I just think so much of what you're teaching is consistent with what Christ wants us to do and what he taught to do. And I think, Patrick, what we're naturally wired to do, I think Mm -hmm. somehow the Fortress Church has muted us a little bit from doing what we want to do because we're not quite sure how to reach out to marginalized groups. And we haven't maybe been taught that, even though I think naturally we want to do that. Um, but sometimes we feel like to fully love and follow God, we need to stop loving some of his children. That's a false dichotomy I think sometimes gets set up in our minds. Um, more just examples of, of marginalized groups and what we can do. Or um, I wrote down the name Darren Perry that I think yeah. you know. You could yeah. talk about Darren. He's actually, we were missionary companions.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: Um, and I know that that's an example of, I know you're friends with Darren and are sensitive to the work he's doing. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that example or just any examples.
1: Well, I think it's a great example <laughs> again, right? I mean, you know, what relationship do do the native Americans today have to, to, to Lamanites? Well, I'll, I'll leave that to, to smarter people to, 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 figure that out. But what I do know is that the history of indigenous communities uh, in this country and, and around the world um has been one in recent centuries of victimization and marginalization, um, uh, exploitation, colonization, displacement, um, all of those kinds of things which are which certainly resonate with the experience of the Lamanites and of Israel um, in the scriptures. And I mean, what, what I love about Darren's work is, is that he's so attentive to the history And to to talking very honestly and actually recovering the factual, honest history of what happened to his people. The brutal violence and displacement uh, against his people um, that, uh, if not always done directly by Latter-day Saints um, in this region, was done with their knowledge and they cheered it on, uh, even when uh, the the U.S. Army or, or somebody did it. Um, but what Darren does is he's he's interested primarily in a in a, in a work of reconciliation, which 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 includes a, a very straightforward and honest accounting of the past. You can't have reconciliation if you paper over the past, if you paper over the problems. Um, that's just a kind of conflict avoidance. Um, and so you have to deal with the problems. You have to listen to the stories of those who have been, uh, you have to privilege the stories um, of, of, of those who have been traumatized and hurt, uh, whether past or present. And that lays the kind of groundwork uh, for, for future work. One of one of my, um, in, in one of my classes, we, we just read a book uh, by a guy named Charles Marsh. It's called God's Long Summer. It's about religion and the civil rights movement, uh, especially in 1963, Mississippi. It's terrific. It's one of my favorite books. But he talks about the, the the concept of clear burning the, this is what a lot of farmers do in the winter time he says down in mississippi is is they'll they'll sort of burn their fields they'll burn their crops so they can see what sort of garbage and litter uh is is laying around so they can get the garbage out and then plant the field anew and he says that sometimes uh, history has to be a work of clear burning um that, that, that we have to uh sort of you know be able to um what seems like a destructive process this kind of process of fire uh, but but it can uh, it can reveal um, what's uh, the, the clutter and the garbage and the other things in the fields that we need to clear out before we can have a, a productive season of planting. Um, and it seems to me that that in in our church, even with only two hundred years of history, uh, we we have some clear burning to do. So one of the chapters in, in, in my book is called "Excess Baggage." Um, and uh, you know, and I, and I think about you know uh, we we live in a post nine eleven world. That, uh, you know, whenever you go to the airport, I haven't been to the airport in, in a long time uh, since March, you know, uh, most of us haven't. But when you go to the airport, you hear these announcements, you know, don't pick up anybody else's baggage and don't accept packages, for, you know, don't accept anything from from anybody else. Well, it seems that along the way in the restoration in our 200 year history, we've we've picked up some other people's baggage. We've, we've picked up things that weren't necessarily there or meant to be there in the, in the beginning but that we've picked up um, along the way and even taken home with us. And that includes racism, it includes patriarchy, it includes homophobia, it includes, you know, some of these other cultural colonialism, a kind of fundamentalism. So I talk in that chapter about this baggage that we've picked up along the way, that if we want to move forward, if we we want the third century of the restoration to be what I think God calls us to be and to do, that that we've got to take stock of this extra baggage that we brought home with us. uh, that somebody else gave us, uh, but that we picked up, we brought home. Uh, so, so now we got to figure out what to do with it. And, and, um, and, and, and I'd suggest that maybe we need to discard some of that excess baggage so that we can lighten our load and move forward in a productive way.
0: I love that. And I've never mentioned my other brother's book ever on this podcast. Um, I have a brother that's a history professor at the university of Oregon and he wrote a book, listeners, called Surviving Genocide, Native Americans in the United States from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas. Um, And that's uh, a book that came out in June of 2019. And that really takes everything up from the United States until from the 1750s um, to the start of the Civil War. And he's working on the second book, which is everything since then, and mostly history of the Western United States. And Um, I love just, I love some of the things you said in that segment. You've got it. You can't gloss over. You've got to fully reconcile the past and what Darren's doing and others are doing with him is the path to healing and you can't gloss over. Um, so I encourage, you know, it's great work that Darren's doing. We never talked about this when we were mission, mission companions in England. Um, um, but it's just fun to see what Darren's doing that you two have uh, join, you know, joined forces in some ways in helping make this happen.
1: Well, that's one of the things, I mean, it's interesting. You guys never talked about it. I mean, and, and when I talk to people uh, from minority communities and marginalized communities, that's oftentimes the, the, their reality is they feel like they can't talk about this stuff. Yeah. Right. They have to bury it. They have to sublimate it. Um, and so I think sometimes, um, those of us who are in majority cultures or in positions of power and privilege, we need to actively create spaces um, for, for people to, to tell their stories and share their pain um, because the, the, the dominant tendency is to ask people um, to, to bury that, to squelch it, to, to not rock the boat.
0: Do you talk about women or LGBTQ in your book? Some of the other yeah. talk, just share LGBTQ thoughts for our listeners and women thoughts
1: yeah and 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 I have to say that that in this book i don't I don't spend a um, a ton of time talking about LGBTq issues. i I mention them um, uh, as, as part of this broader set right. of, of issues that, that we have to deal with, but I don't dive in in any de- detail, but I think I think right now in 2020 and, and who knows what it's going to look like twenty years, fifty years, 100 years from now, but in some ways that doesn't matter, right? what we're what we're asked to do is to deal with what's right in front of us. And what's right in front of us right now as a church is to figure out a better way to um, to to include, to value, uh, to provide opportunities for for full participation for all of the members of bo- of the body of Christ, all of its members. Because we know this from Paul that um, every every part of the body of Christ matters. You can't say to one part of the body uh you don't matter very much or or you're you're insignificant right we have no need of you i think is the line that that, that paul uses in fact paul inverts it the way that the gospel always does the gospel always turns our ex- expectations on their head and um and paul says we give greater honor to the lesser members uh or or those members that are perceived to to be lesser right that that don't have a place of honor and he says we give greater honor to those and i think that's I think that's one of our challenges right now. Um, and I don't know, I, it's not my prerogative, it's not my position um, to, to to know what the church is going to do in terms of a formal policy-driven way, you know, for, for women uh, or for LGBTQ members. Um, but what I do know is, again, what's right in front of me. Which is the ways that each of us, because when when people ask me about these things, they're always asking about like, you know, what's going to happen in Salt Lake, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I'm very interested in that, but I have absolutely no control over that. None whatsoever. right? Right. All I can do is be a Christian. All I can do is is within my sphere of influence, whatever that is, whether it be on podcasts or in writings or most of all. In my local community, in my ward, and among the people that that I um, am am, am among, is to create spaces of inclusion, to broaden the body of Christ, to give honor to every member of the body of Christ, and to seek their gifts and to allow them to flourish and bring all of their gifts to the table. That's what I can do. And and to plead for greater inclusion, to remind us of the, the fundamental doctrine, the most important doctrine. Of all is that every single one of us is a child of God, made in the image of our heavenly mother and father. That is the most important thing, and everything else has to stem from that. If we start from any assumption other than that, we started on the wrong foot. And um, and so that's you know that that's that's what I can do, and that's what I try to remind people to do is that um, you have the power in your local sphere, whatever it is, within your family, your ward, whatever your sphere of influence is, to create greater spaces of inclusion for women, to create create greater spaces of inclusion for uh, LGBTQ members, for people of color within the church, for anyone who has not traditionally found themselves in places of honor uh, within the church, Um, which would basically be anybody except for uh, fairly well-off heterosexual white men uh, like myself, um, and so, uh, so I again, I, you know, the 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 kinds of policy things the church has to do, that's um, that's that's not what God has called me to do right now, but He has called me to be a Christian, and um, I can never stop doing that.
0: It's a great answer. How do you handle? What do you say to people who hope our policies change and our doctrine changes and they sustain current doctrine and, certain pol- and current policy, but they really fundamentally at their core, if they're LGBTQ or allies, hope policies or doctrine change? Does that disqualify you from being a faithful Latter-day Saint?
1: No, it never does. It never does. In, in fact, we always, uh, part of what it means to be a Christian, part of what it means to participate in the restoration is to hope for better things. Um, And hope is a very powerful Christian virtue, and it's not a passive virtue, it's an active virtue, um, the same way that faith and love are. And um, we always have the power of prayer, and I think we have to believe that our prayers are efficacious and uh, that our prayers are heard uh, in heaven. Uh, I think we, um, we are each called to be anxiously engaged. And, uh, mostly that happens for most of us at a local level. Uh, and, and so, I mean, one of the reasons I love books, like, um, one of my favorite church books is Nyland McBain's book, women yeah. at church, yeah. where she, you know, I, she has a lot of questions, but she also says working within the current structures that we have, what can we do? And what she calls us toward in the spirit of being anxiously engaged, is a spirit of creativity and innovation, right? Um, that the way things we've all, the way we've always done things, is not the way the things have to be done, and that there's, there's actually a tremendous amount of latitude and flexibility and creativity that we can bring into our local practices, um, uh, if we will open our eyes, if we'll be attentive, if we'll seek inspiration, God will inspire us uh, to do His work of restoration within our sphere of influence. Um, and And I think um look i uh, I mean you know as well or better than anybody um, but 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 I've talked to a lot of folks too that there's there's just a lot of pain out there, and that's what breaks my heart and um, I hope that um, you know for, for me some of the some of the greatest stories of courage and faith um, are, are the people who remain committed to institutions, including the church, even when the institutions have not always been fully committed to them.
0: What a great statement. And,
1: and because they feel called to, to those places. And um, I just so deeply respect and not everybody's going to feel that some people are going to experience our community as a place of hurt and trauma and pain and it's hard for me to to argue somebody that they should stay in a uh, in in a place that only causes them pain um but i um but if they are able to to you know to, to to find redemption, if they're able to be agents of redemption, if they're able to to co-participate with Christ in the redemption of the world, which includes the redemption of the church, um, then I think that's a holy calling. And some of the holiest people that I've met in this life um, are the people for whom um, faith is not an easy thing, and participation is not an easy thing, and they haven't always been welcomed. I mean, for, for me, like being a member of the church is um, sure, I have my little speed bumps, but that's all they are. I mean, the church was built for people like me. It was created by and for and of people like me, same. and it works really well for me. Um, but my calling is to make it work well for other people and because that I think I think that's what God wants. I'm pretty sure that's what God wants. In fact, I know that's what God wants. and um so I just um I, I just honor the holiness of the lives of of people whose whose faith and commitment is refined in in struggle and per- perseverance, in a way that I, I'll just never personally experience.
0: It's a great segment. I I love your answer to that. It came very quickly to you. You've obviously thought of that question before, Patrick, and it was just bo- The answer was just born out of creating space for people and love and understanding and empathy. And I. I don't want, you know, our church to play small ball is what I call it. Is everybody yeah. has to have uniform beliefs about where we should go with future potential future policy or doctrine as a way to sift people out? We just get smaller and smaller, and let's create spaces. We're creating Zion for people that are willing to follow the church and support the institution, support our doctrine, but but hope and pray that something changes and recognize they feel even though they don't have stewardship for the whole church or know God's will, their personal feeling and their lived experience is that we're not to the finish line with helping women feel fully valued and more, maybe more importantly, using their gifts to help us become the body of Christ and same with our LGBTQ members and other marginalized groups. So, Well,
1: and, and especially with, with women, I mean, um, uh, LGBTQ issues, I, I think, are the hardest because it's so new for all of us. Right. I mean, you know, sometimes we forget that, that it was only halfway through his administration that President Obama got fully on board. Right. Uh, True. With, you know, same sex marriage and other things. So this is look, if you're if you're um, somebody in Gen Z, uh, this is the world you grew, grew up with. But anybody older than that. <laughs> You know, it has to recognize that that there is no issue. And I say this now as a historian. I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I cannot think of a major social issue where there has been a more radical and dramatic change in such a short amount of time in the history of the world. And and, and I don't make those kinds of statements lightly. Think about women's rights. Think about abolition, slavery, civil rights, and so forth. That that took decades, centuries, right? A long time. And I know there was, you know, long prehistory. For LGBTQ, the, the, you know, the struggle for, for gay rights and LGBTQ equality. But the real movement doesn't begin until the second half of the 20th century, and, and mostly in this century, right? I mean, it's a blink of an eye historically. Wow. And I think a lot of us um, are, and, and institutions, uh, including our, our governmental institutions, are still trying to figure that out. But with women's issues, there's such, you know, uh, we've been wrestling with this for a very long time. Um, and in our church, we actually have a history of dramatic and radical possibility of of something like equality Um, with the founding of the Relief Society and with with, uh, temple ordinances and and things like this. In a lot of ways, the 19th century church was far more radical on gender issues, and and I'm not talking about polygamy. (laughs) I'm talking about men and women and the empowerment of women than we are now. We actually retrenched in the 20th century from the position that we were in in the 19th century in terms of recognizing and empowering women to exercise their spiritual gifts and leadership so if we need a restoration part of our restoration is to go back to the early years of our movement That's when we more fully recognized and appreciated the gifts that women had to bring to the church and to the movement even then we weren't perfect um, but in a lot of ways we were more quote-unquote progressive and i don't mean that in a political sense um, but, uh, but, but we, um, there, there was some radical empowerment going on in in the 19th century with its limitations that we've forgotten and need to recover and restore.
0: I love that. And, um, the Givens, um, they have a new book out. They were on an earlier podcast. and As I've read some of that book, it talks yeah. about some of that beautiful, unique, restored doctrine of heavenly parents, co-equal co-creators. We can have a personal relationship, the role of Eve and the. And Adam and that equal role. And it and I I forgot, Patrick, how unique that doctrine is yeah. until I read it through the lens of the way they teach it. And that's probably part of your book, is how radical that was to the times of the day. And and to me, when people say, you know, I hear people in church say Joseph Smith was a prophet, I kind of now want them to go one or two steps further. What that means is beautiful restored doctrine that came through the restoration that allows these sort of benefits and I'm a marketing guy <laughs> to come into <laughs> people's lives like you know this relationship we can have with heavenly parents an understanding of the role of women, which helps me as a man to better understand the role of women it's not just for women <laughs>
1: yeah that's right um, and, and I think one of the things that has to be restored, one of the, the things that we have that we've not yet fully developed is our understanding of Heavenly Mother and of of the divine feminine. Yes, Um, I I think that's part of the third century of restoration. Again, historians make poor profits, so I um, don't put any money on anything I ever say (laughs) in terms of predicting the future. But it seems to me that we are very well positioned um, to to restore more of a doctrine of Heavenly Mother. When, When I teach Students about Mormonism, and I've taught courses on Mormonism and gender um, uh, for graduate students and, and others. And I always have non-LDS students, and when they learn about this notion of a heavenly mother, like an exalted female, and that all women have the potential be, to become goddesses, equal in power and authority to to God, they're like, "Why aren't you guys telling anybody that? Like, that is like the best thing we've ever heard from any religion ever." And you guys, what, are keeping a lid on this? Like, you're scared <laughs> of your own best stuff? <laughs> right? They can't believe it, right?
0: And uh,
1: it's, like <laughs> it's like the Jazz
0: like not playing Donovan. It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a really yeah, good like, You're
1: going to keep your best player on the bench? For, for what, exactly? Right? To, 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 like, protect him, right? Or, or her, right? <laughs> Uh, It it, it makes no sense to them. And and once they said that, I was like, oh, you're right. That doesn't make any sense. And and for me, it's not only theological, but institutional too. The Relief Society was this radical um, when allowed to to flourish. It was this incredibly powerful organization in the 19th century for women's empowerment and spiritual gifts and healings and so forth. I've got students here at Utah State who uh, who are doing their theses using the local Relief Society minute books from the 19th century. And just discovering incredible stuff about the the way, the way the women were talking and ministering to one another and blessing and healing. And, you know, when somebody was sick, it's like, okay, call for the elders, but like really call the sisters, right? Because they're the ones who are really going to, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, minister with power uh, in, in this situation. And uh, just powerful stuff that I think we've forgotten and need to remember and, and restore.
0: I love that. We're at the end, Patrick. Any final things? I love. I'd love to go for another hour.
1: Um, yeah, any final I'm things? Sure your you listeners would... wouldn't, so <laughs> they might. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um,
0: any final things you'd love to share?
1: No, for for me, you know, um, you know, one of the things we didn't we didn't talk about today, but which is really important is is the role of the church and all this because I think um, so. I'll, I'll just whet people's Good. appetite for that to to go into the book because we do have this claim that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is true. Right, it's the only true and living church upon the face of the earth. Section one. What the heck does that mean in a world where we constitute two tenths of one percent of the world population? What does that mean? So I will I will leave that tantalizing bit with you, uh, to for, for readers to discover my answer to that question. Um, but 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 the thing I'll leave with is that for me, um, the the, the last chapter of my book is is totally positive. There's this great quote that I use from 1845 from this proclamation of the 12 apostles of the churches before they reorganized this first presidency. And they they were so audacious then. They sent this proclamation to like all the kings and presidents and everything of the world, right? And, basically, and they talked about the restoration. They call people to repent. So they use all this very stark language. But I love this line where they say, basically, what is the purpose of the restoration? What's the purpose of all this stuff? And they say it is to renovate the world, to renovate the world. And so, so I, I leave readers and, and, and want to leave your listeners today with this very positive sense of what are we called to do is to renovate the world. It's not just to grow a church. It is to renovate the world, to heal the world, to restore. Yes, God is worried about your family, but more than that, Heavenly Father and Mother are worried about their family, and their family is everybody. That's what we're called to do: is restore their family to wholeness. And yes, so our nuclear families are part of that. Yes, our church is part of that. Yes, our country is a part of that. All those kinds of. But all of that is, as you said, that's all small ball, right? And it's impo- It's really important. It is radically important. We can't. You can't restore the whole without restoring the parts, right? And because we are finite mortals, usually all we can do is focus on the parts. So, so God in His mercy has blessed us with the ability to minister just to the parts, right? But never to lose sight of the vision, that we are called to renovate the world. That is audacious. It is bold. It is inspiring, right? For people who are bored at church, I understand why people are bored at church. It's because because we collectively have not fully caught vision of what God has called us to do. And there is nothing bolder or more exciting or more challenging or harder or more, you know, the the things that will just rip us apart and force us uh, to re-examine everything we think we know um, than this mission to follow Jesus in building Zion and renovating the world. Um, So I've, so, so I hope that when people read the book that they come away with a sense of optimism, a sense of hope, a positive vision of what the restoration can be and do in its third century and a feeling like attaching themselves to this church, to this story, to this people, to this community, can be one of the most meaningful ways for them to renovate the world. Um, and in that way, to, to do the work of restoration along with our, our heavenly parents.
0: I'm just deeply moved listening to you, Patrick. Um, our listeners, the book is Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World. I wrote down the word HOPE, listeners, in big capital letters and circled it. And that, to me, is what Patrick is bringing. He's not making that up. He's connecting us with our beautiful restored doctrine. If we really own that doctrine, believe in that doctrine, then to me, it just fills me with hope. Actually, I thought of being a missionary again. Yeah. I thought of actually, this is the kind of message, Patrick, I want to take to the world as a missionary because it heals the woundedness and the brokenness. And the Book of Mormon is a means to that. And the yep. Prophet Joseph Smith is a means, but I don't want to kind of lead with those anymore. I want to lead with their addressing their woundedness and brokenness and how that brings hope. And to me, this is a book as, and your sort of ministry is a roadmap to help us do that. And I love the visual imagery of the third century and that church, I believe, in Romania, and just the visual imagery of where we need to go. It's powerful. So, on behalf of all of our listeners, Patrick Mason, and we really appreciate the work you're doing. And this is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.